This is Grounded, a podcast from Michigan Sugar Company. Grounded is intended to explore our history, the tradition that's made us great, and the ideas to drive us into the future. Grounded is hosted by Jim Ruhlman, Michigan Sugar Company Executive Vice President. And now, here's Jim Ruhlman. Welcome to Grounded. As we look at some of our foundational pieces of our cooperative, it's very, very easy to understand that agriculture and our crop and our sugar beet growers are probably the most instrumental piece of our growth and opportunity. With us today, we have Mr. Carl Bednarski, who is very, very familiar with Michigan agriculture, grew up as a sugar beet farmer, was served on our board of directors for Michigan Sugar Company, and is now the president of Michigan Farm Bureau. Carl, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here, Jim. Maybe we can start with your upbringing, and many of our listeners know you, but maybe they don't know your full story. So let's just start with some of your upbringing and when you started growing sugar beets and how you got into the beet business. Well, I think it's probably a typical response you hear from a number of farmers is what drove them to where they are now. All I wanted to do was farm. I have two older sisters, and that's all we did was farm. And I farmed with my father, and I didn't have any inclination whatsoever to do anything else. At that point in my life, it was it evolved around farming. That's what I loved to do, what I knew, and didn't really have an interest in anything else at that time. So as you get more involved in the sugar beet industry and Michigan Sugar Company, you become a board member. And one of the key turning points for our company was when we became a co-op. That group of farmers on that board at that time, they were a really strong, stable platform for us as we were were at that turning point of Michigan Sugar Company. Can you maybe describe to us what that feeling was like as a grower. You understand that Michigan Sugar Company is in a bankruptcy situation with Imperial Sugar Company. Can you maybe talk about the pressures, maybe the opportunities, what the mindsets were with that group as we were going through that process? That was a very interesting time in not only each of those board members' lives, but also as a company's life. Mm -hmm. And it was like a roller coaster. There was ups and downs and so many things we learned you know what got us there though was the industry we seen the industry it was well over 100 years old and we all knew what we wanted to do the frustration of that point was that number one financial times were not that great for farmers at Mm -hmm. that point and trying to get them to pony up money to buy this company was not always an easy sell But the thing is, though, too, you looked at a company that's been here for that many years, and it's not only, i probably go out on a limb here, but in my view, it wasn't only the farmer's responsibility. It was a very profitable company, and we were able to make money off that. But when you take a look at where these factories are located, they're in our rural communities. And who worked at those factories? It was our people in those rural communities. So our neighbors were working in those facilities. And it was not only to save the industry for the farmers, but it was also to save perhaps our rural communities. Yeah, I don't think you went out on a limb at all there. I think that's your spot on because it was impactful beyond just your own farm. It was the community. It was the employees. It was saving the tradition and allowing us to go from point A to where we are today. So 
I know there was a lot of meetings, a lot of time spent. Was there ever a point where you didn't think it was going to happen? No, no, it was going to happen. And the thing was, what was it going to look like? There were some times where we were pushed to the edge. We looked at you know the financing part and, mm-hmm. and trying to find banks to finance us and taking a look at a crop that didn't store very well then one year. I mean, there was a lot of obstacles there, but the thing was, I think all of us at that point were very positive in succeeding. And like I say, that company is a staple in our communities. Sure, we had, like I said, ups and downs and a lot of, a lot of meetings. I mean, mm-hmm. running the Saginaw. So many times during a beautiful day when we should be out farming. Yeah. And it was very time consuming. But a lot of times, too, the producers didn't see what we were able to see. And to try to relay that message to them that it does have a future here. Mm-hmm. And it was a very trying time at that point to get that company up and going. But it was very rewarding in the end to see it take off and flourish on its own. Yeah. At what point in your farming career did you become interested in? serving on boards or becoming involved with leadership positions. Had it always been an interest for you or did it just kind of happen? No, this one's a little bit different. You don't go soliciting a board position, I guess you could say for the privilege or for the view of being a board member. Mm -hmm. You don't do it for those reasons. You have to do it because of what you want to do to help that company or that organization excel. And did I have any interest of serving on a board at a younger age? Absolutely not. That's yeah. furthest from the truth. And the way I started, though, I wanted to learn more about things. And what better way to learn more about things than getting involved? So that started, my first board was the Tuscola County Farm Bureau Board. Okay. And what that did, it gave me an opportunity to see how boards are run, how they're structured, to know basically when to listen and when to speak up. Mm -hmm. You can get yourself in a lot of troubles when you start talking about something. You don't know what all the details are. Mm -hmm. So that was a great learning opportunity there. And then I had the opportunity to be asked to serve on the Carroll District Board for Michigan Sugar and did that. And then it it proceeded to being asked to represent the Carroll Board, had the opportunity to serve on the steering committee to represent the Carroll District. And that's where it all kind of started to learn more about that process, to learn more about the sugar industry, and then also going one step further to learn more about Farm Bureau. So you evolved to a Michigan Sugar, full-fledged Michigan Sugar board member, and you're also serving on boards for the Farm Bureau. And it appeared to me that there came a point in time in your career where you just didn't think you could devote enough time to both, or or maybe you saw that further opportunity at Michigan Farm Bureau. So can you walk us through that thought process and that transition of that time in your life? Yeah, I didn't realize how uh, (laughs) challenging it was at the time, but around that 2000 time period, yes, I was on the Michigan Sugar Board. I was also elected to the state board for Michigan Farm Bureau in 2000. So I was doing both of those and also farming and had a young family and I was getting everything done. Lisa, my wife, was very supportive and things went on, but a couple of things happened at that point. I think we all know, or many of us know in the West District, Don Suttle. Don was involved with the Carlton District at that point. Mm -hmm. He was also on the Farm Bureau Board, the State Board with me. I didn't realize that. And Don is very straightforward, and anyone knows the big D, 
<laughs> would, <laughs> would respect his uh, uh-huh. his wisdom, and yeah. he'll be chuckling if he hears this. But <laughs> Don one time said to me, he says, what the heck are you doing? And it's like, what do you mean? He says, what are you doing? I says, he said, you're, you're on this board. You're on the Michigan Sugar Board. Who's running your farm? I said, well, I am. How many people do you have running? Well, right now we're, we're just one other individual. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he just shook his head. Then I realized at that point something triggered that maybe the plate is getting pretty full. Okay. And had to make a decision that maybe two of them are not going to work. It was a tough decision because I had individuals from the sugar board that was pulling for me to stay on. Mm-hmm. And I had individuals at Farm Bureau asking me to stay on and, and don't go anywhere there. Mm-hmm. So there was a little burnout too, yeah. so much intensity with the sugar. And I felt at that point though, that I could probably do more at Farm Bureau for agriculture, for sugar, mm-hmm. than I could with the co-op. The co-op okay. was up and running. Co-op yeah. was doing well. Mm-hmm. They could go on without me. I wasn't a necessity there, but I thought I could do more by okay. being involved with Farm Bureau. Okay. When you were on the Farm Bureau board at that time, did you see the future growth opportunity for you around that time or no? No. No? Like okay. I said earlier, I never had any intention to move up any further. Okay. I had individuals within Farm Bureau that said, hey, you need to step it up another level to get involved more okay. on, at the state level. I see. And it was like, no, I have a young family. They are involved in different activities. They're going uh, sporting events. They were all mm-hmm. involved in. I says, no, the family comes first, mm-hmm. and I'm comfortable where I am okay. right now. All right. What year was that, Carl? Like, Give me a frame of reference for time frame. Well, that would have been back in probably the mid-late 90s Okay. at that point. Okay. Yeah, probably the late 90s at that point where a little pressure was being applied. Okay. So, Carl, there was a time where, you know, when you got off the Michigan Sugar Board and you you spent more time with Farm Bureau, and then there was a transition up to the president of Michigan Farm Bureau. What types of things transpired during that time, and what was the year or the time that you became the president of Michigan Farm Bureau? I became president of Michigan Farm Bureau in 2014. And leading up to that, I was comfortable where I was on Mm -hmm. that board. And I was on the executive committee at that time for a number of years. And I was in a good place. And I always pushed back a little bit about further responsibilities. But then when my predecessor, Wayne Wood, decided to retire, I had a number of board members come to me and say, hey, Mm -hmm. would you step up now and consider that position? Mm -hmm. And that position is elected by the board. And... I reflected back and realized that at that point that our youngest son, Michael, was a senior at MSU. And the other two had already worked outside of the farm and were now back on the farm. And I realized that, yes, I probably could do it now. So we sat down as a family and talked it through and decided to, I guess you could say, run for that position because it was elected. Okay. And so was elected as president in 14. Awesome. As the president of Michigan Farm Bureau, I think you had a pretty good understanding of the sugar industry. And I, I quite honestly don't know the full scope of, of what you do at, at Michigan Farm Bureau. And I'm sure many of our listeners don't either. So at a higher level, maybe describe to us what you're responsible for in your position at Michigan Farm Bureau. Well, first of all, it's a full-time position. I'm in Lansing mm-hmm. uh, uh, during the week. Mm-hmm. And it's not only the agricultural side that makes up Michigan Farm Bureau. 
we also have the insurance company that I am also president of. I see. And so you have a non-for-profit organization in the agricultural side and a for-profit entity in the insurance world. And it, it gets very busy, two totally different worlds. Mm-hmm. And when you take a look back how it's structured, I guess I serve on approximately 17 boards that I chair. Wow. And a lot of those are smaller ones that are entity of another company. Mm-hmm. But also taking a look at what's happening in the agriculture world. What's happening with farmers? What are they looking at? What do they need? What's happening with regulations that's coming down that could be detrimental to them? When we take a look at the relationship we have with MDART, the relationship we have with Eagle, how do them all come together and affect our members in agriculture? Mm-hmm. Then put the Farm Bureau insurance hat on, and it's like, okay, how do we make money here? When I came on, we were a single-state organization. That means we only sold in Michigan. Now I believe we're selling in 22 states. We've oh my goodness! two other companies in the meantime, and we need to expand that footprint. Okay. So how does that business plan work? How can I help those individuals along the way and uh, identify uh, different opportunities and give them the direction they need mm-hmm. along with the board? I mean, that's their role. I don't necessarily enter into day-to-day activities but right now with especially with the circumstances we're under right now the officers meet every morning at eight o'clock on the team's meeting okay we have a building that has during the regular working periods that we had before the covid we had 700 people approximately in that building right now we have between 30 and 50 okay and they come and go at all times they're not all there Mm -hmm. at the same time okay So when you look at the diversity of Michigan agriculture and where you sit in Lansing, what did you find about the diversity and the different interest levels and the different participation levels of the different commodities in Michigan? Were there any that struck you as more challenging or more interesting? Or I'm sure you try to treat them, quote unquote, the same. But was there anything that struck you when you sat in that seat And when you looked at the whole Michigan platform of agriculture, when you took this position? I was very prepared. There was no surprise when I took this position. I knew who those commodities were. I knew the relationship we had with those commodities. And the thing is, though, we're unique in Michigan because we have so many Mm -hmm. commodities. I mean, we take a look at blueberry, asparagus, cherry, apple, dairy, feed grain, sugar. I mean, there's so many different commodities And we're very unique because I talk to people throughout this country, and a lot of times I see corn, wheat, soybeans. Mm -hmm. And a diverse operation might have hogs, might have pork involved in that rotation, Mm -hmm. but very limited on what they grow. You get down to south, there's a little bit more. You get into the cotton and those types of things. Mm -hmm. But very interesting to see, though, how unique we are no matter where you go. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe outside of California is the only uh, one that comes in comparison. So in your position, who do you talk to? Obviously, you're leading your groups and your staffs. When you talk about supporting the industry or supporting Michigan agriculture, who are you having conversations with? That's an interesting question because you, uh, <laughs> you have to uh, you, you talk to a lot of different people, whether it's officials or within administration, whether it is on a national level. You know, our congressmen, senators, and not necessarily in our state, I mean outside. Whether you talk to the administration, the federal administration, when you talk to the trade advisors, when you talk to USDA, when you talk to Secretary Purdue, there's a lot of information there. 
But when you boil it down, you have to make a decision on your own. Mm-hmm. And probably this is where I get a little frustrated because don't tell me no. When I come up with an idea or want to go a direction, mm-hmm. don't tell me it won't work. If you don't think it'll work, you show me why it won't work. Okay. If it won't work, I'll change course on a dime. But don't just come out and say, no, that's a stupid idea. That won't work. Okay. And so I try not also to let a lot of negativity weigh in. Farmers, and yeah, to a point, I could be guilty, but I try not to listen to all the negativity. You go out in the countryside here, you go out in the coffee shops, and everyone always complaining. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't always look at all the positives, the bright sides that we have in agriculture, and there are a ton of them out there if you just look for them. Okay. So is there a chain of command within the national and state farm bureau structure where you handle state issues and then you have to hand off national issues? Or do you have the freedom to just call the Secretary of Agriculture? Or do you have the freedom to call a congressman from another state? Is there a chain of command or a structure within Farm Bureau nationally? Or are you able to kind of make your calls as you need to? Well, we do have the American Farm Bureau, which Mm -hmm. I was elected to in, I believe it was 2016. Okay. So uh, I represent the Midwest on the American Farm Bureau board. But yeah, they are more the national issues that they deal with. Okay. Also here in Michigan, we have an individual that handles our national issues that works with the American Farm Bureau and works with senators and their congressmen. And so it's a combination. Can I go out and talk to those individuals? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Can I call USDA? I do. Yeah, I do. I don't need the, I guess, the blessing of the American Farm Bureau to do that. If we follow, if we're following the policy, we have no problems there. So yes, it's kind of open to wherever we want to go. But the support is always there from the national level to, to help us. Okay. While we're talking about national level, and you look at the national landscape of agriculture, what do you see? What do you see right now is our biggest challenges? And I know you're not, you don't look at problems, you look for more of opportunity. So what do you see as the challenges currently in agriculture at a national level, or, or maybe even a global level? And what are the opportunities that you see? Well, the first thing that will come out of most individuals' mouth, and it's because it's probably the easiest, is, is profitability. When we take a look at profitability and what we're seeing in trade agreements that affect that and a number of other things that we see happening under that big picture thing is we're seeing a lot of integration. I mean, we've seen it come in the poultry industry. We see it in the, in the pork industry where there's that consolidation where you're actually growing, producing for another entity. And I think you're going to see more and more of that. We still love talking about the family farm. Yes, and the family farm is run a lot of times by family members, but it's going to get bigger and bigger. Okay. I mean, it's just it, just the way the trends are going, just the efficiencies that are happening. And you have to take a look at that. When that person that has that off-farm income to help support that farm, it's getting to the point now that off-farm income may not be enough to cover a small operation out there I see. just because of the efficiencies. It's a sad story that you see, but it's there. If you okay. look, it's black and white. It's coming. Okay. So when you talk about integration, are you talking about vertical integration from whether it's in the hog business or if it's cash crop farming integrated from being part of the whole entity? Or are you talking more of 
farm consolidation where they're still able to produce the product for another company. Are you talking about farm consolidation or are you talking about that vertical integration within the company? You're going to see some of that vertical integration, especially okay. in, you're seeing it in our fruit and vegetable industry on the west side of the state. Okay. You're seeing that happen. But then also, I think before we get to that vertical integration, you're seeing the farm consolidations. Actually, we're going back, I believe, to where farmers are going to have to start working together more. Mm-hmm. You need to have that scale. And then you're going to be working with one processor or two processors. You're going to have that. It's going to be contracted. You know what you're going to get. And that's the way it's going to be. The open market for where you're going to sell your commodities is, is diminishing somewhat. Okay. So it's, there's a lot of opportunities there. But, I mean, the thing is, though, open your eyes and look what's happening around you. Okay. And you'll get a pretty good idea of what's happening in agriculture. All right. When you look at the diversity of crops in Michigan – and you look at the positioning of those crops nationally and globally, is Michigan well-positioned going forward, or, or does it depend on the commodity? Well, I think Michigan is very well-prepared uh, going forward, Okay. mainly because of our location. Okay. You know, we have all these different commodities, and we are we're in the Midwest, or closer to the, almost to the East Coast. We have markets that we supply with all these other commodities that perhaps the logistics don't work as well if that product is coming from Georgia or coming from California or something. So when you take a look at those commodities there, our logistics play a huge role in Michigan. And with our resources that we have here, it will only benefit those commodities. And water's king. I mean, that Mm -hmm. is the the biggest one that we have in Michigan that so many other states are very envious of. We have an abundance of water. Okay. And you talked a little bit about it, but I was at a conference where I heard Zippy Duvall make the statement that his definition of sustainability is a profitable farmer. There's a lot of talk about sustainability and sustainability statements and carbon footprints and so forth. But when he made that statement, it struck me. And I think it's very, very true. So when you talk about a sustainable farmer or a profitable farmer, you talked a little bit about you know, maybe it's vertical integration, or maybe it's joining forces with other farms. What's going to make a farmer profitable? Is it those things, or are there other things as well? Well, I think there's a number of things that weigh into that, and Zippy has said that multiple times when we have board meetings, because everyone loves the buzzword sustainable. And what is it? You can define sustainability so many different ways, Mm -hmm. and there's not one model that says we're in that center section where we're sustainable Mm -hmm. and so what he comes back with is first step is the farmer has to be profitable before we can Mm -hmm. be sustainable and there's a lot of options to take a look at when you talk about sustainability and it isn't necessarily just growing the crop is there another way to market that crop is there opportunities to grow a different crop Sometimes we have a tendency to get a little lazy. You know, we love to grow the corn, soybeans, wheat. It's an easy crop to plant. It's easy crop, uh, very little risk really involved with it. And it, the rewards sometimes are not going to be as high as you perhaps if you find another processor that wants a specialty trait. I see. And you can provide that for an additional revenue off that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we need to take a look at those opportunities in agriculture. And 
just take a look back at what our forefathers does. Let's let's take a look at sugar. We're sitting here talking to you about mm-hmm. sugar. Yeah. You know, that industry's been around for well over 100 years here in the state. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, though, look how it's transitioned, how it's transpired to where it is today. Sugar beets outside of in the fall have become much easier to produce. But the thing is, though, too, we progressed in that way. Mm-hmm. One concern I have is, are we looking for that next generation like our forefathers did? Are we putting the resources and the money into these facilities that the next generation can move it to the next level? Or are we trying to pull out as much out of that company so we need to invest in a company for our next generations? Sure. So let's talk about that next generation and let's talk about preparing the next generation, whether it's Michigan Sugar Company assets and facilities or assets on the farm. You have kids that are, I guess I'm not going to make any assumptions here. So tell me about your family farm today and that farm operation. And I see your kids becoming more and more involved in running the farm. So tell me about that dynamic and tell me about that handoff and tell me about the words of wisdom you've given your kids and to help them prepare as they take on this farm occupation and support agriculture going forward? Well, yeah, (laughs) I chuckle with that one because, uh, yeah, no matter what, I'm not going to win at trying to answer this. But uh, uh, no, uh, we have three boys. Lisa and I have three sons, CJ, Nathan, and Michael. All three are back on the farm, and the farm is run by them. They have all identified what they would prefer to do on the farm. It's remarkable that they're all different. Mm -hmm. And so they all have their different tasks that they're responsible for. And and yes, they do the day-to-day operations. Are they going to make mistakes? Absolutely. Have they made mistakes? Absolutely. But I'm not going to hold them back and say, don't do that. Because why would I? Mm -hmm. I mean, they have to lead their life. They have to take that farm to the next level. Maybe I don't know what it is. Maybe they know what it is. So go ahead and try it and do uh, what you think. Mm Yeah, I'm going to watch. I'll be supportive. But yeah, yeah and sometimes I've watched the stupid steak unfold in front of me and where I've seen it. And it's like, hopefully you learn from that one. Yeah. But at some point, though, I just felt we had had to let him go. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting, though, that because I didn't realize it when I did take the, uh, the Farm Bureau position, when all of a sudden I'm gone five days of the week. They said that first year was pretty tough. Mm-hmm. because I wasn't always there to answer the questions they had. Sure. And they had to figure it out on their own. Mm-hmm. But anymore now, I've realized that when I come home, maybe the first thing to do is to grab a broom instead of ask, what have you been doing, what are you working on, this types of things. Mm-hmm. Just realize mm-hmm. that they've been working there all week, and I haven't. Right. And just take a look around and observe what's going on. It's really interesting when, as your kids get in their 20s and 30s and you're a parent and you want to give them advice but you know they got to have their own wings they gotta you gotta allow them to be their own people and and give them that support to be their own person it is a difficult time for a little bit for a parent to let them fail on their own but it's absolutely the right thing to do so my kids aren't farmers but i think the handoff and allowing them to be their own people is probably the same regardless of what your occupations are When you look at yourself and you look at where you came from and where you are today, I know you downplay this a bit and you're very humble about it, but what are the foundational pieces that 
and this is probably the leading question to our wrap-up of the podcast, but what are those foundational pieces that keep you strong, that, that make you confident, that allow you to look in the mirror every day and say, I'm doing the right thing in the right way? Well, uh, the first thing is don't take responsibility. Don't take credit for anything if you can. You know, leave that up to other people. Okay. Don't go patting yourself on the back. Just go out and do what's right and treat people the same, treat them fair. I think you've heard me say this before. Every couple of days, I have a gentleman that comes around with a watering cart, mm-hmm. and he waters the plants in the building. And he'll come in my office, and we'll have a conversation. I will not treat that individual any different than the two CEOs that sit next to me in the two offices. I feel that he is just as important. He loves doing what he's doing, and he's no better than him or anyone else. And don't put yourself on a pedestal. Okay. That has been, it's sometimes harder to do when you think, because people want to put you on that pedestal, but you got to keep taking yourself off. you got to give those credit, let those individuals have the credit. I don't need the credit. I don't need the pat on the back. I would much rather give it to, whether it's a family member, whether it's an employee, whether it's a, a fellow farmer. As I've seen throughout my career, that I didn't go out and solicit to get where I am. People put me where I'm at. I respect that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, just like I said earlier, shut up and listen. You can get a lot more from listening than you can from talking on a subject that you may not be very familiar with. And always try to be the smartest person in the room. When you come to somewhere and you're going to talk about an issue, you better know that issue. And you better know the background on that because that's where you get your credibility from. I see. I'm not going to let you go just quite yet (laughs) because I'm going to dig just a little bit deeper into this thing. So when you talk about your humility and your humbleness and treating everyone the same and having that respect for all walks of life, and where does that come from? Where does that foundational piece for you come from? Boy, Jim, uh, yeah, you're not going <laughs> to I, I don't know. I don't okay. know. Maybe it, was, uh, maybe it was from my parents that never, okay. uh, they just uh, were hardworking. You know, right. Get the job done and do it right. All right. If you can do a job, make sure it's done right. Okay. That was one of the main things. Yeah, and move on. You know, once that job's completed, move on to something else. Okay. Don't sit there and dwell on what you did. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, I'm looking back. I'm thinking here really hard in <laughs> those early years. And uh, yeah. and I think our, our whole family was that same way. My sisters uh, have been very successful in what they've done. And, and it, probably for 10, 15 years, I had no idea what my one sister did hmm. until I found out one time that she was a controller at a major hospital in Detroit. Had no idea. She just okay. went and did her job. And uh-huh. uh, and one time I kind of scratched my head because I, she called up and said, what would a hospital be doing with 10,000 gallons of diesel fuel? That's a, <laughs> I said, I, I have no idea. And yeah. she go, I said, well, do they have a generator? Yeah. Maybe it's a back. Yeah. So, yeah. and then I got to thinking, why, why, are, you, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, why are you doing that? I just think you're a great example for all of us. I love your humility and your humbleness. You lead by example. You let your actions speak for your words, and there's no false pretenses about you at all. So I really appreciate the example that you set for all of us, and I appreciate you spending time with us today, Carl. Well, it's great to be here, Jim, and thanks for the opportunity. And we're very unique here in not only Michigan, but in the sugar industry. We have something special here. Let's not slip away. Let's embrace it and see how we can build it better yet. There's so many people around this country that are so envious 
of what we have here that we don't even know sometimes. The diversity we have in the different crops that we can grow and being part of this co-op is just remarkable. So yeah, take a look around. I'm very excited to be part of agriculture, excited for Michigan Sugar and uh, what the future holds for it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'll just keep going until I decide one day I've had enough. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. This has been Grounded. If you'd like to hear an episode on a specific topic, please email your ideas to grounded at michigansugar.com. Thanks for listening and check back soon for another edition of Grounded.